Hello, I'm Rob Buckingham. Welcome to Digging Deeper, episode 50. Through each episode of this podcast, we dig deeply into a theme or topic to see what the Bible has to say about it. This episode discusses some verses in Isaiah chapter 61 that help us overcome grief and find strength in life's struggles. Later in the podcast, I'll share some thoughts on why Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. But first, why does the Bible teach that women should wear head coverings in church? Let's find out. Let's have a look at the verse that's referred to there, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 5, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Interesting sort of verse there, isn't it? Notice there, of course, that Paul talks about women praying and prophesying with um, their head uncovered. Later on, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 14, Uh, He says that women are to be silent in the church, but here he's talking about them praying and prophesying. So obviously he didn't mean women should be silent in all occasions and at all times in the church because here they are praying and prophesying. And this is written to a church community. Uh, Chapter 11 is all about how they conduct themselves in church gatherings. And so it's okay for women to teach and to speak and to pray and to prophesy in church services. Paul was referring to something else in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, And so let's do a little deep dive into this because these verses here in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16 actually, Paul's talking about two things. First of all, he addresses head coverings and then he addresses hair length. So in the first century, A woman's hair was considered an object of lust, and so it was right for her to have her hair and her head covered during worship. She wasn't to be a distraction to the other people in the gathering. This is still the case, of course, in many countries today and and cultures, uh, particularly in Middle Eastern countries where head coverings, the uh, hijab and uh, burqa and other types of coverings are used Uh, for women, so a lot of the Middle Eastern Arabic uh, nations. But, of course, it's not usually an issue or a problem in most Western countries. I want you to reflect on this with me for for just a moment because if you cast your mind back to the Gospels and toward the end of Jesus' life, just before his crucifixion, he's having dinner, and I think he's having dinner at a Pharisee's house, and this lady Mary comes in and it tells us in the Gospels that Mary lived a sinful life. Some people think it was Mary Magdalene uh, out of whom Jesus cast seven demons. And so Mary Magdalene had lived, I believe, as a prostitute. So it's likely that this Mary, whether it was Mary Magdalene or not, had lived as a prostitute. And uh, as many women had to back in those days, particularly if their husband divorced them or if they didn't get married, most of the women were not allowed to work and so they couldn't earn an income and, and so they would, they would 
obviously get into that kind of employ just to get income. Now, the interesting thing about this story is that she breaks this very expensive jar of ointment uh, over Jesus, right? And it's likely that she had bought that with the proceeds of her prostitution, really kind of like a superannuation policy, if you like. When she couldn't work anymore, she would sell that jar and live on its proceeds. And so think about that for a moment because she brings that jar and she breaks the whole thing over Jesus. So she, what she's doing here is a radical act of worship. She is trusting, entrusting her entire future into the hands of Jesus, her Lord and her Saviour. It's a wonderful um, moment. Of course, there were bad attitudes floating around the room as uh, along with this magnificent act of worship. Uh, Judas kind of complained about the whole thing. He was like, well, why wasn't this sold and the money given to the poor? And the Apostle John says not that he cared about the poor, but he was a thief. So he was interested in that being sold, the money going into the treasury, and then as the treasurer he was going to steal some of the money. So he wasn't interested uh, in this act of worship at all. And then some of the others, the Pharisees, uh, were judging Jesus. They thought, oh, okay, if this guy's really the son of God, he would know who this is who just broke this ointment on him and is now crying and wetting his feet with her tears, and then she lets her hair down and dries his feet with her hair. Now, the act of letting the hair down for a Middle Eastern woman in those days, I don't know if it's still the same today, but that was an act that she would only do to her husband, and it was a sign that she wanted to make love with her husband. And so we still use that saying today, don't we? When someone's going to have a good time, they're going to, they really let their hair down. Now, my hair let me down <laughs> many years ago, but to let the hair down means to go and have a good time, to kick your heels up, to have a party. Um, in in the day, in Jesus' day, it, it meant an act of uh, seduction. And so here we've got this woman, she's a prostitute, and she comes to Jesus and lets her hair down and everyone's looking on aghast and Jesus doesn't seem to worry about it at all. And in fact, he rebukes everybody and says, you guys have got stinking rotten attitudes. That's my paraphrase. But he's like, catch yourselves on. This woman's just done an incredible act. Her sins that are many have been forgiven and, and the one who is forgiven much loves much. Jesus saw this just as an act of love, which was stunning. Everybody else was pretty well horrified by it. But often people are horrified by extreme grace. And so um, to let your hair down like Mary did uh, was, was, a, was an act of seduction. And so Paul is writing here in the church to the Corinthians saying, make sure that you've got your heads covered. So Paul's support for women to wear head coverings was also a statement about economic equality. Wealthy women could afford elaborate hairstyles, but the poorer women couldn't. So to counter this disparity, Paul suggests a custom of all women covering their heads so as not to cause the less fortunate members of the church to feel inferior. Now, this was a proposal of radical justice 
uh, particularly in the first century world. He then goes on to talk about hair length, and this is interesting too. He recommends short hair for men, long hair for women. Uh, the question, of course, is why, and does this still apply today? So let's have a look at these verses. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 14, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Well, I look at that from a 21st century Western perspective and go, actually, Paul, no, it doesn't. The very nature uh, of things does not teach me that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace for him because in my culture, it's absolutely fine for a guy to have long hair. Now, use your imagination here, but I used to have long hair. I used to have long, flowing, wavy, blonde locks down to my shoulders and a big, bushy, kind of hippie beard um, back in my early 20s. You need a lot of faith to imagine that now. Uh, so the very nature of things in Paul's day, of course, said that a man that had long hair, it was a disgrace to him, and we'll find out why that is in just a moment. If you look at verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 11, but that if a woman's a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given her as a covering. And so um, does the very nature of things tell us that a woman should have long hair? Well, no, it doesn't, not in our society. So what's going on here? The answer to that question is all tied into what was happening in this town of Corinth. This was the hub of the temple of um, Aphrodite, and she was the goddess of love, the sensual goddess of love. And um, the whole worship system was surrounded by temple prostitutions, both men and women. So the male prostitutes in the temple would always have their hair long and invariably they would wear a veil with their long hair. That was their identification. For female prostitutes, they would have short hair or literally shave their heads and they would be unveiled. And so these so-called so sacred prostitutes were employed by the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth who were often freed slaves that were dedicated to their gods for sacred sexual rights. Now, there's a very interesting statement of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. He gives that long sin list and then he says, such were some of you. So he's talking to people in the church and he says some of them were like that. And uh, in other words, there were in the Corinthian church former prostitutes, both men and women, who had become Christians and were thus no longer to identify with their previous immoral life. So for this reason, the, the, the apostle encourages the women, the Christian women in the Corinthian church, grow your hair long. In other words, don't don't have short hair, don't have shorn heads, because everyone will think you're a temple prostitute. And the same with men. The very nature of things in Corinth said to a man, don't have long hair because you'll get mistaken for a temple prostitute. And so such situations or such instructions, at least, don't apply in most situations today. In Western society, hair, hair length is not an issue. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and that it helps you with your understanding of the Bible and how it applies to life. If you're finding it helpful, please let others know about it. 
One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. That goes a long way to help other people find us. And please like us on Facebook. Now back to Rob. Do you have a scripture to overcome grief and for strength as I've been struggling lately? Uh, I do have a, there's a lot of scriptures I could give you about grief and strength for difficult times. Um, but I'm going to share two with you. And uh, if you got your Bible, you might want to turn to Isaiah chapter 61. I'm going to pick it up from the second part of verse 2, which says, To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise for or instead of the spirit of despair. They, the people, will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Magnificent verses. And uh, let me just give you a, a very brief history lesson here because this will really help you understand some of the background and context to what Isaiah is talking about. There are actually two Isaiahs. So Isaiah the prophet is really two people who wrote at two completely different times, but then it was put together in one book around 200 BC. And so this is known as the Deutero-Isaiah theory. And Isaiah number one uh, wrote chapters one to 39. And he died, by the way, around 698 BC. And tradition says that he was sawn in two, which... I wouldn't imagine is a very nice way to go, but I'll leave that to you. Uh, so chapters 1 to 39 were written in the 740s BC. In other words, this is well before the uh, captivity in Babylon. So the second section of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, was written by the second Isaiah. And this was written when the Jews returned to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. So that was around 538 BC. And we see this clearly reflected, reflected rather at the beginning of the second section of Isaiah, which is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. And look at the way this Isaiah starts this section of the book. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for. So this is after. So they've they've gone into um, Babylon uh, captivity for was supposed to be seventy years, but it was a little bit short of seventy years. And then God is starting to bring these people back to the land. Not all of them. Some of them stay in Babylon. They were born there, and they're used to the culture, and they stay there. But there is this remnant who comes back to Jerusalem and they're devastated by what they find on, on left of their homeland. And so these words from God, comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, proclaim to her that her hard service in captivity has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. Stunning, stunning words. And so um, Isaiah then, as I say, was compiled into the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, around 200 BC. The text that I read before from Isaiah 61 is located in the second part of Isaiah. 
The people are back in Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the city. They're rebuilding the wall. They're reestablishing themselves in Israel, but it's a hard slog. These people are despondent. They're grief-stricken at the decimation of Jerusalem. They could do with a little bit of encouragement, and that's what God is giving them uh, through the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 61, in fact, is the prophet's encouragement to a discouraged people. And I'd encourage you sometime during this week, why don't you open up your Bible and read the whole of Isaiah chapter 61. The next few verses in that same chapter, verses 4 and 5, say they will rebuild the ancient ruins, talking of these people, and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And look at this. I love this. Strangers will shepherd their flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. Isn't that great? What an encouraging word. God is saying through the prophet here that that other people will come alongside you and help you. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. In other words, you're not going to do this on your own. Reflect for a moment on a situation maybe recently or some time ago when you had a massive task to do. Might, might have been something like you had to move home and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, this is huge. It's daunting. Got to pack all these boxes, got to shift them all, got to clean, got to unpack, put everything out. It's a big job. And then, but some people come alongside and they help. Someone rocks up with a trailer, a couple of strong blokes, um, and, and then somebody else brings lunch and, or, or dinner around, you know? So suddenly you've got all that help and you feel built up and encouraged. And you go, wow, you know what? I can get this done because now I've got the help. That's what God is saying to the people here. Others will come and help you. The prophecy also looks forward to the Messiah who will make an everlasting covenant with the people of Israel. That's Isaiah 61 and verse 8. And then verse 11 says that that the uh, Messiah will make a covenant with all nations, which, of course, is what Jesus did. And then 560 years later, Jesus stands up in a synagogue one day. It's his time to read the scriptures publicly. The attendant hands him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He rolls it out to what we know as Isaiah chapter 61. There were no chapters, of course, back in the day with those scrolls. But he stands up and he reads those same words in the synagogue that day, rolls the scroll up, hands it back to the attendant, sits down and says, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing, and then he teaches his sermon. What an amazing day that would have been to be in synagogue. Wouldn't you have hated to for that day to be the day you decided to sleep in? Just a thought. Over 2,500 years later to today, and we are still reading these same words and finding encouragement in them during times of crisis, times of struggle, and times of grief. What we see uh, in these magnificent verses in Isaiah is literally a divine exchange to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Beauty instead of ashes. The word beauty in Hebrew uh, is pronounced Pierre, and it's not the French name Pierre, uh-huh, 
but it's a Hebrew word, which is P-apostrophe-E-R, P-E-R, and it refers to a turban that a bridegroom would wear for his wedding day. So brightly coloured, it was a joyous occasion. It's also referred to a, a garland of flowers that someone might place around your neck. Ashes were a sign of sorrow. So in Jewish culture, they would express their sorrow and their grief by um, putting on sackcloth, which is coarse. I mean, you've ever felt a sack? It's coarse and it's it would be rough and scratchy and itchy. And they put that on and then they sit in ashes and then lift the ashes and throw them over, over themselves up in the air. And so what we see here is beauty instead of ashes. So the prophet is saying, or God is saying through the prophet to the people who are grief-stricken and, and struggling in life, you give me your ashes, I'll take your sorrow and your grief, and I will give you a garland of flowers around your neck. I'll put a colourful turban on your head. It's a wonderful promise of a divine exchange to all who mourn, for those who grieve, to bestow on them beauty instead of ashes, a turban or a garland. It reminds me of a, a, a wonderful story that um, happened to me, uh, thanks to my dear wife, Christy, back in 1997. And I was working on the radio on a Sunday night doing Rob Buckingham and Friends. And uh, I used to interview lots of different people. And we had an off-air care line where uh, people could ring in and receive, a, you know, just talk to someone who would listen and then pray for them. And I had, these were all volunteers, mainly people from Bayside Church, but some other churches as well. And of course, I had a voluntary receptionist. And uh, I was having a commercial break during the program and the intercom went off in the studio and it was the receptionist. And she said, oh, Rob, Christy is at the reception and she wants to see you. And I said to her, okay, thanks, I'll, I'll come up. And I've got to tell you, I was a little mystified and I was actually a bit miffed, to tell you the truth, because we were going on holiday for a week the next day and Christy was supposed to be at home packing. And that, like, confession time, right? This, that's what went through my head at the time. I was like, why is she here? She's supposed to be home packing. It wasn't great. But anyway, I, I walked up through the sales area from the studio toward reception and Christy was walking down. And she had a garland in her hand, and but it was a fake one, right? And uh, it's because we were doing a promotion at the time. I think it was something to do with uh, a cruise to Fiji or something, or maybe Hawaii or something or other. And we had all of these fake garlands hanging around the sales area at the radio station. And Christy had picked one of these up. And I said to her, I said, what are you doing here? And she said, I brought you some flowers. And she put this fake garland over my neck. And I said, that's not even real. <laughs> and she said, well, it's the best I could do for the father to be. And I stopped and, and, and it took me a moment for her words to really hit home. I said, uh, uh, fa father to be. And she said, yeah. She said, I've just done a, a pregnancy test and, and I'm expecting our first baby. That was in 1997. And that was amazing. And talk about beauty for ashes because we had tried to 
conceive for I think it was almost two years. And you know, if if you've gone through this in life, or if you know people who have gone through this, it's really really tough, you know. And and every month you hope, and then you're disappointed, and then you build up your hopes the next month, but then you're disappointed again, and it goes on month after month. And after a year, and then you know, getting on for two years, you're just wondering, you're niggling away in the back of your head. I wonder if we actually can't have children. And so this was stunning, and and I was speechless, which rarely happens, I got to say, and and oh man, I was we hugged and laughed, and oh, it was just absolutely magnificent. And then Christy toddled off; she went home and packed for our holiday, and I went back in the studio. And the next person I was about to interview, it was on how to deal with problem teenagers. Oh, dear. And look, I, I just really found it very hard to concentrate, I've got to say, through that interview because all I could think was, I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be a dad. And, of course, uh, nine months later, uh, Gigi popped out into the world and she's now 24. And so we've got two other children um, who were not as difficult uh, to make happen as uh, as our first was. But I, I just wanted to share that with you because that's a beautiful example from personal experience of what it's like to be given a garland instead of ashes, instead of grief and sorrow and despair, and, and to trust that God will do that for you uh, at the right time and in the right way. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, when Moses dies, my question is, was Moses not worthy enough to be taken to heaven after all he did? Was one failure so bad? Well, it certainly appears that way, and uh, and, and I agree with you, after all he did. So let's dig into this a little bit and, uh, and, and discover what was happening here in this story. So a few verses to look at in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And from verse 48, second part of verse 48, on that same day, the Lord told Moses, go up into the Abarim range to Mount Nebo in Moab across from Jericho and and view Canaan, the land I am giving the Israelites as their own possession. I just want to think about that for a moment. Go up. He's 120 by now, by the way. And whether that's a metaphor or not, he was an old guy. He was well advanced. And God says to him, go and climb the mountain. And it's like, that, maybe that's what killed him. I don't know. He climbed this mountain. And now look across the valley and have a look at the promised land. By the way, you're not going in there. That's what this these verses sound like. There on the mountain that you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. This is because both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin or uh, Sin, really, S-I-N, um, because it's on the Sinai Peninsula, the desert of Sin, and because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. Therefore, you will see the land for only from a distance. You will not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. 
it sounds harsh. It sounds really harsh. So what was going on here? There were a couple of um, times while the people were out in the desert and God says here to him, the times that you broke faith with me. What he's referring to there is the second of these two occasions. So the first of them, both of the occasions, by the way, is when the Israelites ran out of water and they were in the desert, they were incredibly thirsty, and they all started to complain and whinge and carry on to Moses. And God gave Moses a strategy to provide water each time. So in Exodus chapter 17, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Isn't it fascinating how we all forget about the bad of the past and only remember the good? Like here they are in the desert. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Guys, you were slaves, remember? <laughs> you were chained and beaten and starved, and life was not good. So just kind of catch yourself on. We all tend to look at the past through rose-colored glasses at different times. And then verse 4, Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. So God gives him a strategy. He says, you see this rock? You know, I want you to strike the rock with your staff. Remember the staff that he had? In uh, Egypt, the one he threw down became a snake, snake, picked it up, and it became a stick again. So hit the rock with the staff and um, water will come out of the rock, and it did. So, And all the people were then satisfied. The second of the occasions is recorded in Numbers chapter 20, and this is towards the end of the 40 years in the desert. And once again, the people are complaining. They're thirsty, and they say, why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness? that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Same place, sorry, different place, different time, same people, same stinking attitudes going on. In other words, some people will never change. Whatever situation they find themselves in, they will find reason to complain. Don't be one of those people. Just a thought. So Moses and Aaron ask God for help. And this time God says, gives them a similar strategy, but it's not the same. And he says, speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. Remember, first time strike the rock, second time speak to the rock. But Moses was angry with the people. He was ticked. And so instead of speaking to the rock, he hit it twice with his rod. Listen, you rebels, he says in Numbers 20. Must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm, struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank from this water. So the water was still provided. But in verse 12 of Numbers 20, but the Lord God said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough, to honour me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. You will not bring this community into the land I give them. So 
you didn't trust me enough to honour me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. So this was punishment then for Moses getting angry and not trusting God, and instead of speaking to the rock, he hit it with his staff. And so the punishment, you won't go into the land with the rest of the people. Seems pretty harsh. In the New Testament, Paul turns this story into a metaphor. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first few verses, and he says metaphorically that the rock was Christ. And so, of course, in my head, I see this rock now that's lying in the desert. It's got a couple of eyes and it's and it's sitting there and it's very, very still because it doesn't want to freak people out by moving. But when the people aren't looking, the rock shifts a little bit. And, and, and so when they get to this next place in the desert, there's the rock. And Paul says that rock was Christ. And so he's turning the story into a metaphor or an allegory. And so the first time that Moses uh, was to strike the rock was a metaphor of Jesus being crucified. They struck Jesus and, and he was killed and then rose from the dead. So this is an allegory, says Paul. And so the second time where Moses was only to speak to the rock, the striking of the rock was like crucifying Jesus a second time. And some people have suggested that that's why God was angry uh, with Moses because Moses ruined God's metaphor. I don't think that's the case uh, because this whole thing, this whole interpretation actually makes God look petulant and cranky. Now, important here to remember that ancient scriptures were written from the perspective of the people and how they viewed their God. So this is the people's view of God. And, and many of the gods, little g, in the ancient world were petulant and cranky and constantly had to be appeased. Finally, God came to planet Earth in human form to show us what he was really like. That's who Jesus is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so in Jesus, we can actually see that God is not petulant. God is not cranky. He doesn't want to rob you of blessings. Um, and, and when his people want to destroy people, like when you think of the, the, the disciples and Jesus trying to get into a Samaritan town one day and the Samaritans didn't give them hospitality. And James and John, the sons of thunder, said to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven like Elijah did and smite them all? And Jesus looked at them and said, you don't know what spirit you are of. The Son of Man has come to save, not destroy. And so Jesus there gives us, he takes the glasses off and gives us proper vision of uh, what God is really like. And so let me suggest to you some other reasons that there might be of why Moses was not permitted into the promised land. I'm going to give you four reasons, but there's some overlap between each of these. First of all, the question needs to be asked, was Moses the right man to lead the people into their new home, their new situation? Was he the right fit? Remember, he was a very old man by this stage. He'd lived a long life uh, and, and, and he had served God well by bringing the people out of Egypt and around 
the desert for 40 years and finally getting them ready to go into the promised land. The people were about to enter a new land. None of them were alive when the Exodus began except Caleb and Joshua. None of them were tainted by slavery, the heavy burden of that chained past. And Moses was forever haunted by his past. Maybe to have a chance at a life of freedom, the people needed new leadership for a new chapter in their history. It was heartbreaking, but a distinct possibility of why God didn't let Moses into the promised land. The second reason was that uh, for Moses not entering the promised land is one of those primal human moments that touch us all because in some form, to some extent, at some time, we have all been in a similar situation to Moses. Think about times in life when you have failed or you may not have completed a task. Maybe you started a degree but didn't finish. When you had almost arrived. What this speaks of is actually unfulfilled dreams. And what I find in this story is actually highly encouraging, as I'll share with you in just a moment, when God can actually fulfill unfulfilled dreams, as he did for Moses. The third reason for Moses not entering the promised land also demands us to reconsider our goal-driven lens on how we value a person's worth is Moses any less worthy because he didn't arrive at his destination? Are we any less commendable when we don't quite make it, whatever it might be? And finally, number four, in the end, Moses' life barometer isn't a matter of whether he enters Israel, but rather if the people he had responsibility for made it, and they did. The dream of the original Israelites who came out of slavery in Egypt the ones who perished in the wilderness, was that their children would be free in the promised land and how righteous it is to want the life of your children to be better than yours. The question I'll finish with here is, where is Moses the next time we read about him in Scripture? And the answer to that is we read about him in Matthew chapter 17. And the story here is of Jesus' transfiguration. He says to Peter, James, and John, his three closest friends, he leaves the other disciples at the bottom of the mountain, <clears throat> says to Peter, James, and John, come up here into this mountain for an amazing supernatural experience. I want to have a nine felt about being left behind. And they're up there on the mountain. Jesus is transformed, transfigured, literally metamorphosized in front of them. And uh, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Moses and Elijah. Where is the Mount of Transfiguration? Answer, inside the promised land. Moses made it. He was inside the promised land. And so it might have been an unfulfilled dream, but eventually the dream came true. Moses made it, and I hope you find that as encouraging as I do. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Every Wednesday, a new episode of Digging Deeper is released. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with others and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic that you'd like Rob to address, please contact us at Rob Buckingham's Public Figure Facebook page. Join us next week as Pastor Rob answers the question, 
what happened to Enoch and Elijah's bodies. We'll also discover who the eunuchs are that Jesus talks about in Matthew 19. And we'll do a deep dive into Luke chapter 9, where various people ask to do other things before they follow Jesus. Why is Jesus so tough with them? We hope you'll join us then.